Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. My name is Burns, an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. Uh, let me thank the committee for asking me to come to talk. This is a beautiful room. Uh, it just feels good. I'm sure all the other speakers have recognized that. It just feels warm. I can see your faces. It's just a wonderful, um, wonderful room. Time to have a little bit of a celebration, I think. I'm really honored to be asked. Uh, <clears throat> Dave talked a little bit last night about my talking tonight and how they give me an extra day to get my talk together. And I really appreciate that. And uh, Dave is a special person. He is a living testimony to the fact that some of us are sicker than others. <laughs> the, uh, we do a bunch of newcomers meetings in Louisville, and there are two of us that do it. And uh, we switch roles at times. And <clears throat> on one night, I'll come in and I'll be disheveled looking and things like that, and uh, the next time he'll come in that way, and when we sit down and talk to the newcomer, what we usually say is, now, if you don't get into this program and do what we're going to ask you to do, you're going to end up looking like Dave, only, uh, <laughs> but uh, I do appreciate it, and, and that's the kind of spirit that's in Alcoholics Anonymous, and deeper than real, uh, it's just been really gentle and kind with me, and we walked around in the mall, and he indulged one of my... Uh, impulses. To, I bought a new suit. I don't even have any idea if the damn thing fits. It just looked pretty in the window, so I bought the suit. <laughs> I, I do think it's got a 32 waist, so I know that's ridiculous all the time. There. <laughs> but uh, I'll take it home and alter it. I can't help it. Every time I see a good-looking suit, I usually buy it. The uh, it has been a, an emotional time for the for me listening to the speakers. It started last night when we lit the candle, and I don't know why. It just it struck me that the Statue of Liberty stands as a beacon for those who are helpless and hopeless and homeless. And I don't know of any beacon that shines any brighter than this candle of Alcoholics Anonymous for that young man who came up last night and for whoever is the person who's going to snuff it out. What an incredible amount of things that go on, go on during that period of time will go on in that young man's life. I couldn't help but think about this beacon of hope and how much it's meant to me, the light that shines through each individual member of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon in the rooms like this. The speakers have, have been very uh, emotional to me I, and amusing at times but very emotional. Uh, Sandy last night, I couldn't help but She's the same age as my daughter, who's been in AA 10 years. And Libby's curled up on my lap, and we shared that this morning, curled up on my lap, and uh, when she first came in the program and said, Daddy, I don't want to go to those meetings, and Mother's crazy as hell. <laughs> and I said, Sissy, you're going to need to go to the meetings, and your mother is crazy as hell. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> I'm three-quarters of the way through my resentment where that's concerned, but I really am. 
And I listened to everything. And, and that's, uh, saw her come in, I thought over here somewhere, but it, uh, yeah. And, and first time I met her, and it, it was, uh, such a beautiful lady. Um, and I, and I really didn't know what the, what the attraction was at first until I heard you, until I watched you talking. And take this for exactly what I mean. When my mother was your age, she was a lot older when she died, and a lot sicker, she died of cancer. But when she was your age, she looked and talked and acted a lot like you look and talk and act. And I've always regretted deeply that the program wasn't there for my mother. She was not an alcoholic, and I will talk about her, but she was absolutely decimated by the disease of alcoholism. And um, she would have been just like you, you know, and I really appreciate it. Bo and Shirley, that, uh, I've known them for some time, haven't been around them that much, and, and incredible amount of, of things that are going on, and, and the great faith that's there. We all know that it'll be all right. Most of all, y'all know it. You know? I love you very much, and I appreciate what you shared. The, um, they were razzing me about forgetting my talk. And I may do it tonight. Uh, you know, somewhere in there I'll pick it up and start over because it, 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 there's a lot of funny things in it. You know, a lot of, a lot of dumb things in it and a lot of emotional things in it. But I did forget it one night talking down in, in, uh, Mountaintop Roundup and Rod happened to be there and he sent me messages from everywhere all over the United States said, tell Brady not to forget his talk again tonight. Well, it reminds me, and I may forget it, but it don't bother me. We'll pick it up somewhere else. Or if I, or if I lose it, I'll get Brian up here and we'll get another Sunday morning speaker. We'll get somebody to talk. It ain't, it, the meeting's going to go on whether I'm up here finishing my talk or not. You can bet on that. Reminds me of a story of Father Martin, and, and I love this story because it just tells you a lot. And a bunch of us in this room that can relate to this. We're getting old enough where sometimes our brains get kind of like a sieve. And it had to do with memory, and he was talking about the, this old priest who was about 95 years old. And this old priest had, his mind was sharp, but he couldn't remember anybody's name. So he'd found an, a mechanism to do it. He would write down names inside his lapel, or inside his coat when he was going to do any talking. He's 95 years old. So they had him in this night to, uh, for the celebration of a younger priest who was 70, who was retiring, who'd been one of his, you know, protégés. So he got up there and he had everything on. He said, he said, I am really grateful to be here at this meeting honoring my dear friend, my closest protege, this man who has been a confidant of mine all of his life, my dear friend, Father O'Reilly, <laughs> who, has, who has been the minister and who has been the priest at this wonderful, wonderful parish, this parish that has given me most of my life, the parish of St. Michael. Most of all, I'd like to thank Father for those years of devotion, laboring long and hard in the vineyards of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so if it goes tonight, I'll slip it here and we'll keep right on going, you know. I gave a talk in southern Indiana right across the river from, from uh, Louisville and a little town called Jeffersonville and as I walked into that particular meeting, it's not a regular meeting of mine, I know most of the people in the AA community there and most of them know me. And as I walked in the back door, one of them said, you talking? And I said, yeah. And I said, talking who's so-and-so's birthday? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, keep it honest and keep it short. And I said, well, I'm not sure I can do both. He said, then keep it short. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
so I, I don't know whether it will be short or long, but honest to God, I'll try to, I will try to make it honest as we go through this thing. I do need to clear up a couple of things before I start. When I first came in this program and I was attending conferences early like this, when I came in and sat down and was, and was going to hear a speaker, I assumed that that speaker had a straight line to God and had everything exactly right. And I would sit down because y'all had asked him to talk, so that meant he really had to be something special. So I would sit there and i think, whatever he does, I'm going to do it just like he does it. And I damn near got drunk trying to do some of those things I did. I didn't get drunk, but I got crazy as a loon. I'll tell you that because I need, to, I need to tell that person who may be feeling that way that I feel and just hadn't been able to say it, that what I'm going to tell you is that it's not necessarily the right way to recover or the only way to recover or or um, anything like that. It's my story. If you can use it, please use it. Never is there anywhere in this story tonight do I intend to offend or in any way abuse any of the traditions, any of the steps, or any of the people. It is just my story. It's my life as I see it today. I found very few constants in this program, but one of the constants that I have found is change. There is constantly a change, an evolution of my insights and my spirituality. I've, had pe I've heard people call it different plateaus of growth. That does, I understand that. I have no problem with it. But what, what I can relate to is different plateaus of surrender. Every wall that I've hit has taken me to that next plateau of surrender. Surrendering to God's power and my responsibility. And the balance between those two are exactly what this growth process and recovery has been to me. Different plateaus of surrender. The next thing I found in this program that has not changed for me is I, that from the minute I walked in this program, I walked in completely surrendered to my powerlessness over alcohol. Alcohol beat me. It whipped me. It drove me to my knees. It left me nothing. And when I came in this program, I didn't come in to argue. I didn't come in to debate. I came in pleading that someone could give me whatever was necessary for me not to have to take a drink of whiskey again. For those people I listen to in meetings that say they're not quite sure whether they're alcoholic and they're working with that, my prayers go to them with such intensity and my love, I'm hoping, is strong enough like it was for me when I came in the program because I cannot imagine anything more difficult than working with these steps, going through this process of pain and recovery when you're still wondering if you can take a drink. Because that commitment to not taking a drink has enabled me to bear more pain and enjoy more joy than I ever thought humanly possible without alcohol. Finally, the last thing that has never changed, at least today, and there may be other things as I go through this process, but at least today, the next thing that has not changed is my absolute belief it'd take a power greater than me to restore me to sanity. I was talking about, when I came in here, the insanity of drinking. As I have stayed sober in this program now for almost 14 years, I have found it's even more important. And you know how important it was for that power, if you're like me, greater than yourself to restore you to the sanity from the insanity of drinking. I'm talking about the insanity today of sobriety. Because it gets goofier out there with me sober than sometimes it did when I was drunk. You get anybody drunk, they're going to act goofy. Now, they didn't act as goofy as I acted, thank God, but, and most of y'all, I'm not going to let y'all off to it, because y'all probably got about as goofy as I did listening to most of these stories, but sober, I have been the victim of such incredible delusion at times, 
and so much insanity, which I'll share with you, that it has taken that power even more prevalent in my life and with me every day, that sixth sense, that God consciousness, to help me be aware of my frailties, my humanness. Alcohol's been called a disease of perception. Basically what that means to me is I can take that gentleman back there in that purple uh, shirt and I, I can make him anything I want to make him or I could when I was drinking to twist him into whatever I had to twist him into being to enable me to take a drink. Now I thought it was my, my ex-wife. I, I thought it was being born poor and having a caddy rather than belong to the country club. I thought it was the medical profession who didn't respect my innate genius. I had every conceivable answer for exactly whatever it took to get me drunk. Now, sooner or later, I got drunk, and why not hell? Would you blame me with all of them? I mean, that was the disease of perception that was there. Now, recovery has also been a difference in perception. Let me share it with you, uh, because it really is important. I grew up in a little town in western Kentucky named Mayfield. I grew up in a home where there was no alcohol and there were no drugs. My grandfather died drinking lye water in the Mayfield City Jail. My mother is a true adult child of an alcoholic. She was not an alcoholic, but she was raised in that alcoholic home. And when you read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, you recognize in so many words what it says is, if you grow up around, or if you live with one of us, you get goofy. You can't help but get goofy living around one of us. You just do. You know, putting up with us, you got to be crazy or goofy. Well, most of you aren't crazy, you're just goofy. Well, mother grew up in that home where she was sexually, mentally, emotionally, and physically molested. She brought into the home, into our home, all of that guilt and shame and, and resentment and anger and all of those things that untreated alcoholism has that goes with it. And my brother and I were raised in a home where there was a lot of love. We went to Sunday school and church. We went uh, to a prayer meeting on Wednesday night. There was a lot of support and a lot of love in our home. But mother truly was racked with that undealt with alcoholism. My daughter, when she was five years sober, came to me and looked at, was able to say to me with the recovery she had, Daddy, when you were drinking, I loved you so much. But I'd go to bed at night and pray that you'd die because I hated your guts. And those are the kind of feelings that Mama never got to deal with about her daddy. They treated alcoholics in, in, in Mayfield at that time in the early 30s in a, in a pretty traditional way. When they got drunk, they put them in jail. When they sobered up, they put shackles on their ankles, and they put them out on the streets, and they worked in a chain gang. And my mother would walk to school in a little 12,000 uh, town, the uh, people town, watching her daddy at least once a month sweep the Mayfield city streets. How does that feel? Picture it. Maybe some of you had the same experience. I was spared that. My daughter was not in one form or another. But I know the kind of feelings that my mother brought into that home and how much she had to work and love that little lady. I worshipped her. I was very fortunate. The last year, uh, the last year of her life was the first year of my sobriety. And I got to spend every weekend with her and we worked through almost everything that we needed to work through. And she never quit loving me, and I never quit loving her. But that was the kind of home I was raised in. Now, alcohol and drugs were not a problem for me. That thinking was getting real strange way back then. I became perfect because I realized that when I was perfect, I was mother's child. When I was semi-perfect, I was daddy's child. And when I wasn't quite either one, I was anybody that'd take me as child, you know? And they were willing to farm me out. But I became perfect. Because I wanted to be perfect. I mean, I looked like maybe one day I might be president of the United States, but never a, a drunk. 
because all of my accolades were perfect. Alcohol and drugs were no problem. Went to college and alcohol and drugs were no problem. Now, alcohol affected me almost differently from the first drink. Little college I went to, the women's campus on one side of town, men's campus on the other side of town, and what we'd do on Saturday nights, we'd get drunk. Now, five days a week I'd study. Straight-A student. I'd study Monday through Friday, and on Saturday I'd go to the fraternity house, and everybody got drunk. I got drunk, too. We'd pile on the back of a flatbed truck and go over to the women's campus to serenade the women. We'd get over there, and we'd pap, you know, stand up there, and we'd just be singing up a storm, and I'd just take off all my clothes and stand there butt naked, just singing up a storm. <laughs> Nobody else ever got naked, just burned. <laughs> you know, singing. And you know, I, I like to say that nobody sent me flowers, no phone calls, no cards. You know, But I'll tell you who did notice, the dean noticed. <laughs> Oh, yeah, they have a way of doing that. He called me in. He said, Burns, if you weren't such a good student, we'd, we'd have to ask you to leave school. And he said, your behavior is a little bizarre. And I was thinking, that man's right. It is a little bizarre, you know. He said, we've noticed that you do that when you drink. Why don't you quit drinking? And I said, I think you're right. So I quit drinking. I quit getting naked, and everything went along just fine, you know. Got out of uh, got out of college and went to medical school. My freshman year in medical school, I walked in there and I was racked with those feelings that we can relate to. I, there was something missing in me. You know the feeling? There was something missing in me. I, I didn't know how the rest of them felt, but I made straight A's. And I walked in there and all of a sudden, looking at these guys and gals and getting ready to start medical school, I thought, I can't do this. Something's wrong with me. I'm not as good as they are. There was no reason for me to feel that way, but irritable, restless, and discontented has been a part of my soul for as long as I can remember. I've always been chasing something. And I sat there and said, I can't do this. Frightened, packed my clothes and get ready to come home. One of my friends walked in that night and said, where are you going? I said, I'm going home. Hell, I can't do this. He handed me a little capsule. He said, take this. It'll enable you to stay awake and study. He handed me an amphetamine. Everybody in medical school took amphetamine. Everybody else quit, except me. <laughs> I didn't quit. And two weeks before graduation, my senior year, they kicked me out of medical school for taking amphetamine. I beat up one of my medicine professors when I was in an amphetamine rage. And they came, got me, and took me to the head of the department of psychiatry. And Dr. Keller looked at me. He said, Burns, what's wrong with you? I said, Dr. Keller, I take too many drugs. He said, you believe that? And I said, yes, sir, I do. And he said, we can help you. I said, what you going to do? And he said, we're going to put you in intensive psychiatric therapy. And let me tell you real quick, I'm not anti-psychiatry. And he's the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Some of the major influences in Alcoholics Anonymous were psychiatric. Harry Tebow, for example, and those of you who know the history of AA. I am anti-ignorance. <laughs> and I've been, I've been very fortunate because I did get my medical degree in four years in, in uh, this program. My sponsor took me aside and said, now it's time for you to learn about the disease of alcoholism because we want you to go out and teach doctors. And I've been able to tour this country as probably one of the leading experts in the field of alcoholism. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. And I think it was exactly why God enabled me or left me to become a physician, to be able to do that. To be able to do that, not, not as not as my service work, but it's certainly an area I've been allowed to to expand and, and I think to further insights into alcoholism for those of us who treat us. What psychiatry did do for me, though, and they gave me a lot. They taught me how to identify a feeling. When I came to you, you put that feeling in a structure, starting with a fourth step, and you and they, they taught me how to identify fear and anger and resentment and guilt. 
A lot of my feelings were sideways. I didn't know that a lot of my fears were just pure gut resentment because they wouldn't let me hear what I wanted. And I wandered around trying to identify feelings, except they had helped me learn feelings. Now, they didn't keep me from taking dope because their contract was to help me learn feelings and develop insight. It wasn't until I got to you and you brought me the spiritual solution that the whole puzzle became complete. And I stayed pissed at psychiatry for a long time because I didn't think that they had brought me a spiritual solution. And then I looked at their contract, and you know what? It doesn't say in there they're going to bring me a spiritual solution. <laughs> said they were going to teach me some insight. And when I got to y'all, I said, they're going to give me some therapy. And you said, no, we ain't. We're going to give you a spiritual solution. <laughs> and it took me about five years to realize that AA meetings aren't therapy sessions. And you look at one of the greatest pseudo-therapists in the world. I spent that first five years in therapy in AA meetings, and finally, driven to my knees at eight years, I found out it was a spiritual solution. A beautiful combination. A beautiful combination. But here's what psychiatrist said to me. Psychiatrist said, we think that you can figure out why you take that dope and you'll quit. I said, what do you mean? He said, if you figure out why you take it, you don't have to take it anymore. You're going to think yourself into a way of acting. Makes sense, doesn't it? We're taught cognitive thinking. We're taught cause and effect. If this happens, that's going to be the consequence. So that's cause and effect thinking. That's exactly why we don't, you know, go the wrong way on one-way street. Why? Because if we do that, they'll put me in jail. Makes all the sense in the world, you know. So it made sense that it would work with taking amphetamine. If I could figure out why I took it, I wouldn't have to take it. I was going to think myself. That was their perception of my recovery. You're going to think yourself into a way of acting. Two years later, they let me back in medical school. I hadn't had a drug, hadn't had a drink. Drinking wasn't a problem then. Hadn't had a drug, and I stood there and said, how do you feel? And I said, I'm scared to death. I said, why are you scared? Well, they're going to be watching me. Well, why are they going to be watching you? Because I beat one of them up. Well, is that a realistic fear? Yes, it is. Should they be watching? Yeah. How do you feel? Well, I feel, I feel afraid, but it's a realistic fear. Well, so now you know the feeling. You can own the feeling. The feeling won't have to own you, and you won't have to take that dope. Makes sense. Walked into medical school in 45 minutes. I was hiring Cooter Brown. Couldn't figure out what I was just bewildered, crushed, crying. Hell, I didn't know what it was. What did I do wrong, you know? Well, I, I did graduate. I stayed on that dope that whole year, and they'd take me home, and I'd get too burnt up, and they'd put me to bed, and my wife, I was married, and had a small child, and, they'd, and, and uh, the professors knew what I was doing, but they'd turn their back. I was a good kid. All of us in this program to stick around and good. We got a streak of goodness that's widening us. We really do want to be here for the right reasons, do the right thing, help somebody. We're tired of hurting people. You know, that's exactly why we stick around in this program, for all of those reasons. And they're good reasons. We find so many other things, but that's a hell of a good place to start from. And I was that kind of person, and they didn't want to flunk me out of medical school. They just didn't know what to do with me again. They, they just turned around. They didn't ask me to go to Indiana. Hell, they tried to do anything to figure out to get rid of me, you know. But they, you know, he's got the, he's got a cold again. I had the flu 43 times that year. <laughs> Finally, I got out of, I got out of school. For the next uh, six years, I was in the mental hospital in Louisville four times, strapped down, IV fluid, straight jackets, padded cells, the whole bit. I'd stay off for a while. As soon as the authorities got that close to blowing smoke up my butt, I'd cool off and quit for a while, you know. And uh, and just bewildered, just bewildered. Finally went in the Army in 1967, and they, I was the officer in charge of the dispensary, and I had the only key to the pharmacy. <laughs> That's like, that's, that's like putting a fox in the chicken house, isn't it? 
but I had this figured out. See, I'd go in there and I'd take that little, those little pellets, you know, amphetamine things, and I'd take out two pellets at a time. And, you know, if you take out two pellets at a time, after about a week or two, you've got to have one of those pellets out of that thing, and they miss it. And since I had the only key, they came and said, we're going to kick you out of the Army. And I said, well, I, 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 I'll quit, and I did. So I came home, and I sat down, this is 1970, and I said, I wonder why they keep putting me in mental hospitals and threaten to kick me out of the Army. And I said, I bet it has to do with, with that drug. See, I mean, you could go down here to the, the, it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out, right? It took me 12 years to figure that out. And my last drug was 1970. Then I started drinking. <laughs> and I drank four years. Wasn't alcoholic. I got drunk a lot. But I didn't set out to get drunk. I didn't set out to stay sober. I didn't set out to go to restaurants that only served alcohol. I didn't set out to just pick friends that drank. And for four years, it wasn't alcoholic. It's too much. But alcohol didn't consume my life. Then I went into alcoholic drinking for three years. And those, during those three years, it was, you know, if I'm going to go to UK football games, I've got to drink just this much or I'll miss the game. You know, if I drink this much, maybe I can drive out of the parking lot. Or I'll go to this restaurant, but only one drink. Or I'll go to that restaurant because they have better scotch. That, that scotch over there is what gets me sick. You know, that, that, but it alcoholically. Every single move was was absolutely commandeered by, and I never drank in my office. So therefore, I wasn't an alcoholic. Honestly, when I looked at it and did a good fourth and fifth step after I got in the program, I realized that my office hours for the last two months of my practice lasted 15 minutes. <laughs> five minutes to get there, five minutes to go through, and five minutes to get home, and that's the way it was. And that literally had to because I was drinking because it's the only thing that stopped the diarrhea, it would stop the sweating, it would stop the shaking, it would at least give me a few moments of peace. It didn't give me the relief that that first drink had, but at least it would stop those physical, physical symptoms and signs of just pure addictive alcoholism. The, uh, December 1st, 1977, I sat in an apartment in La Fontenay. Casey, who's not with me and is my, oh, my beautiful wife, she was uh, my first wife and I had separated at that time and she, uh, I don't know if I'd have made it without Casey. I've heard people say that if they came into alcoholics now, you got to come in because you want to stay sober. Well, I wanted to stay sober, but I sure as hell didn't want to lose her. She was, she was my greatest cheerleader and somebody I loved deeply. It grows with time, and as you hear this story unfold, you will hear the sickness of alcoholism when there came a time eight years in this program where I wanted to get rid of her. She called me tonight for the talk, and uh, we usually go together. But sometimes you just have to make concessions because, of, you know, they just have to be made. And she called me tonight, and she said, I love you. I said, I love you, too. And she said, you've got that suit on that you always wear, don't you? And I said, yeah. And she said, you know, you'd have been a hell of a Baptist preacher. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Baptist. I was raised that. That's not a put-down. And I would have been a good Baptist preacher. That's just the way it was. Oh, I, I, I love this suit. You know, I really like, look like Jim Williams. used to always come dressed in a suit like this. And I always like it, too. <laughs> I thought it was a hell of a suit, you know. 
But it, that's that's the kind of lady I'm married to, and she sends her best, and she truly does, and she's a she's a wonderful lady. She's gone to work, and I put and I couldn't figure out how to quit drinking. I knew I couldn't drink anymore. I thought, well, I, I, I knew I couldn't take dope anymore, and I sat there and I said, well, I'll smoke marijuana. And I said, who are you kidding? For some reason, you can't take any mood offering medicine. And I thought, but I've got to live out there without mood offering medicine. Can't be done, not for me. If I can't live out there without it, and I can't live here with it, there's not much other choice, is there? And then the choice really came just like that, take my life. And the relief I felt at taking my life was incredible. Peace came over me, and I went in and loaded a shotgun, put it in my mouth, became aware of a burning desire to live. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't afraid. I, was, I wasn't afraid of dying. I was afraid of living. I mean, and the minute I became aware that I wanted to live, it's just like somebody blew a hole through me, and I literally crawled over the phone and called a good friend of mine, a psychiatrist, said, David, please help me. And he, I went to see him. He sent me off to a treatment center in in, uh, in New York, transferred me to a treatment center in Atlanta, lived at a halfway house three months, came home, got into Alcoholics Anonymous, and came to you people. I've listened to a lot of uh, fifth steps in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't think you know, I've ever heard one that was unique, but each fifth step I've ever heard, there is something that, to me, appears that it's God's peace in that puzzle for that individual to share that may be a little different. I think the only thing that's really different in my story is I took one drug for 12 years alone, just that drug, and it damn near destroyed me. I quit that drug and took another one for eight years, same sewer in here. Damn near destroyed me. What I have found out is no mood-altering drug will work in this alcoholic. None. I'm not telling you what will work in you or whether you should take I'm I'm, I'm telling you about me. I can take an antihistamine and go over and sit in the corner, and I'll sit there for four hours and count my toes. And I don't give a damn how many of them there are, you know. It can be five, seven, eleven. And I'm, I'm not putting on too much. It just doesn't really bother me too much, you know. Neither does anything else, including responsibility, punctuality, anything like that. But no mood altering. If there's anybody in this room that's at that point, and they think maybe they can smoke a little dope, take a little Valium, or if you got that problem, maybe drink a little alcohol, you might be able to do it. My sponsor, Jack, when I'm going up to him and talking to him sometime and I work through this program and use my steps and say I'm a fifth step, when I go through some of these problems with him, he has this interesting way of delivering me a message. He, I'll say, Jack, what is that? how's that sound to you? And he said, you know, Burns, that might work for you. I ain't ever seen it work for anybody else, but it might work for you. <laughs> you know? So I tell you, it may work for you, but I ain't ever seen it work for anybody else. So whatever it works for you, you can try it. When I came to you, this was your perception. I walked into you people and I said, what have I got to do to stay sober? You said, you do anything we tell you to do. You're going to act yourself into a way of thinking. 180 degrees. Psychiatry says you're going to think yourself into a way of acting. You said you're going to act yourself into a way of thinking. The profundity of Alcoholics Anonymous is incredible. Yes, it's simple. But for starters, we have to act ourselves in the way of thinking. We ain't got anything but squash for brains for about two years. You have to act. And I'll talk more about it, but you have to act. If you're sick as I was, you had that. Counting was difficult. You know? You have to act yourself. I said, well, what do you want me to do? He said, we want you to not drink, go to meetings, and read the big book. 
Never changes. Doesn't change. It has to be simple for me. I can take a plate of spaghetti. It's all screwed up and I'll mess it up in about five minutes, you know. It's got to be simple. Got to be simple. Don't drink, go to meetings, read the big book. I said, I know how it is, with, with, at least with me. I've got to figure out why y'all spend all this time on this, you know. Don't drink. Well, I know don't drink. Why do they spend so damn much time ever dying? We go to meetings. Don't drink. Why do they worry about that? Now, I heard Tate by Sandy Beach. He said every time he got drunk, it was a direct result of drinking. <laughs> he said he had never gotten drunk without drinking. I thought, by God, that's why they spend so much time on that. <laughs> so I put that over here. I said, don't. I've got that sucker figured now. Let, let me get to this meeting bit. So I'm going to reflect for you what meetings have come to mean to me as I look back over these years of sobriety. Let me tell you about that home I grew up in. Uh, mother, as I told you, was an adult child, and I became perfect. And uh, they know what adult children was, but she was really messed up by being raised around alcoholism. And when I was a junior in high school, um, I had a couple of beers one night. And I came in, I was not drunk, and I didn't drink. But I had two beers one night, and I came in, and I got sick, and I threw up on the living room floor. Daddy came out of Mother and Dad's bedroom, and he would swipe my mouth off, and he said, Burns Mac, you going up and go to bed. We'll, you know, we'll talk about it in a minute. You've been drinking. I said, yes, sir. He said, you're not drunk. I said, no, sir, I'm just sick. He said, well, we'll talk about it in the morning. As I started up the steps, Mother came roaring out of the, out of the bedroom, grabbed me by the hair of the head, and went, pow, 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 I'll never talk to you, you little bastard. <laughs> and I sat there, and it took a lot of psychiatric therapy and a lot of fourth and fifth steps before I was ever able to admit what I thought. Now, I didn't say it. I wouldn't have dared said it in our home. Our home was based on a lot of love and respect, and, and, and this had no place to be said. But what I thought was I looked at my mother and I said, and I'll never trust you, you bitch. And when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I still didn't trust anybody. I'd been deacon in five churches. I'd been in eight years of psychiatric therapy, and I was still a drug addict and an alcoholic. And when I came to you people, if it wasn't here, it wasn't going to be anywhere. And I couldn't trust you. And let me tell you what I found out about Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a perfect program, but it's composed of a lot of sick people in varying degrees of recovery. The motives are not always pure, you know? Sandy alluded to it last night, and I found out that, by God, people in this program wanted to get my wife's britches from time to time. <laughs> they wanted to get my britches from time to time. <laughs> you know, and I found out, and I thought, oh, what, I don't know, I couldn't tell the guys with the white hats and the guys with the black hats. Where am I going to find somebody? And I began to look in their eyes. I said, why do you want to take me out to have a cup of coffee? They'd say, because, yeah. They'd some, and I found the one said, because we want to stay sober and we want you to stay sober. And I began to look in their eyes and I'd see people who were at home. You know, I began to see the winners and I began to follow the winners and I began to trust. And for the first time, trust was coming back into my life or coming into my life. I began, I had no choice. I found the winners and began to trust, began to trust. Let me clean up that thing with mother before I go on. When I went into treatment, I stayed there for three months, and they wanted me to stay for for four or five. And it was time for me to come home. And I knew it was. I knew inside here. I talked to all the people at home. They said, yes, it's time to come home. Well, as I got ready to leave, they and they beat on me pretty hard about staying a little bit longer. And finally, a counselor, the last, they said, Burns, I know you're going home. 
And he said, I don't think you should, but I know you're going. We need to deal with a couple of things. And I said, well, what? And he said, we need to deal with your anger. And I said, you kiss my ass. Ain't nothing wrong with my anger. <laughs> so he took me over and he got a circle. There were about 20 people in this therapy session. He put a chair here and put a chair here. And he and I looked at each other. He said, I want to ask you a series of questions. You answer them as quick as you can. Don't worry about the answer. Just answer it. First thing he says, who do you hate most in your whole life? I said, I hate my mother's guts. And it seemed like an eternity, but it wasn't more than 15, 20, 30 seconds. And when it was over, after all those questions, I was on my knees, on the floor, hugging his legs, crying about how much I loved my mother and how much I hated me. And he picked me up and kissed me on the cheek, and he said, now you know what the problem is. You go home and get an AA, and you'll find what you need to find. But he said, "Let me tell me about your mother. And as I started talking about her walking to school watching my grandfather sweep the Mayfield city streets, he looked at me and said, how do you think she felt? And I became aware of her pain and her shame. And he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to help my mother. I want to hold her. He said, you found the first step in recovery other than just being powerless is what can you do for another human being? Loved your mother. Walk in her shoes. She won't be perfect, but learn to love her. I'd always loved her, but it sure helped. Let me tell you something else about meetings. I found that thems that don't go to meetings don't hear what happens to thems that don't go to meetings. <laughs> Jim tells a wonderful story, and I'm sure you've heard it about when he got into AA. When he got into AA, his sponsor would come and drag him to meetings, drag him to meetings. He said, finally, I'd, I'd try to hide from him, and he'd find me. He said, finally, one night I hid, and he couldn't find me. said, he couldn't find me, and he said, he called me the next day. He said, well, you missed it last night. He said, what? He said, you didn't hear what you're supposed to hear. He said, what was it? He said, I don't know. I heard what I was supposed to hear. You'll never know what you were supposed to hear. <laughs> I've never walked out of an AA meeting that I didn't take something with me. It may have even been a feeling that was resentment, but when I took it home and worked on it, it became a gift. Literally, on almost every meeting I've ever walked out of, I walked out of with a better feeling than I walked in, but always something. When I travel this country talking to doctors and large legal groups, talking about this disease of alcoholism, putting all those formulas on the board, showing them all those things that still, of course, you got a physical allergy to mental obsession, they said, right put it on a formula on the wall, and I do, and they say, I understand the formula, you know. And they'll finally say to me, why do y'all really ever drink again? And I said, because we forget what happened to us the last time we drank. <laughs> he said, oh, don't give us that. Tell us, give us some more formulas. You read that book, book said, there'll be a day where we will not be able to bring back into our memory with sufficient power what happened to us the last time we got drunk. That's alcoholism. If it wasn't that, then I'd have to either be crazy or stupid. And I'm not crazy and stupid. I got the disease of alcohol. I literally won't remember. Everybody I've ever talked with, when they came, when I was early in this program and they came back from a slip and I was afraid, you know, didn't think they'd shoot me, I'd walk over and I'd take their hand and I'd say, I really am serious. I'm not being smart. They're like, tell me about your slip. Tell me what happened. And each thing, every single time, the common thread was they quit going to meetings. They quit going to meetings. And then when I really became a student of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, I really realized what had happened. They forgot. Every time I walk in that door, I am gently reminded of what I am. 
my God, these steps and this fellowship have finally led me to know who I am. When I walk in that door, I'm reminded of what I am. And if I ever forget what I am, I will lose who I am. And you can take it to the bank. Yeah, I agree with it. Oh, it sure works for me. Finally, I go to a lot of meetings because that's where my friends are. This is home. This is home. I've always wanted to be home. And I'm home. We take golf trips together. We make 12-step calls together. We do what a vision few says. We help work through slips, infidelities, deaths, all the things that Bo and Shirley were talking about. All of those things. This is my home. You are my people. I am grateful to be with you, and I am honored to be with you and what you represent. Don't drink, go to meetings, and read the big book. I said, okay, I'll read the big book. So I got the big book out, and I'd take it, and I'd open it, and I'd start reading. I'd think that's beautiful, and I'd close it. I can't remember it. I'd open it again, and I'd start reading it, and I'd, I'd, I'd say, I got it now, and I'd close it. Couldn't remember it. I'd take my meditation book, couldn't remember it. I'd take the Louisville Current Journal, I couldn't remember it, you know. And I'd come into an AA meeting, I'd say, I can't remember anything. You'd say, hell, don't worry about it, none of us can. <laughs> I'd say, how long does it last? About six months, two years. It gets better. It always gets better. I'd come back the next time. I'd say, what did you tell me last night? I can't remember. <laughs> I can see Dr. Bob and Bill in 1936. It took them one year to figure this out. They're sitting there talking to each other, and Bob says to Bill, how do you feel? He said, I feel great. How's your head? Like a sieve. Maybe we shouldn't make any major decisions for one year, you know? 1975 medical science studied us, and I'm glad they did, because now I've got all kinds of references to teach these doctors when I go teach them. You know, have to have these references for these medical people. They have to have these references. But we already knew it. You know, I said, the alcoholic will lose the power of retentive memory for recent events for six months to two years. Sleep patterns will be destroyed. I used to say, I can't sleep. Nobody ever died from lack of sleep. Oh, God, they don't understand, you know. I gave this talk down at, at Autumn in the Ozarks, and there's a great big tent out there, and it, I mean, it was like a revival, and there's a group about this size, and there was a guy sitting back there, like that, where that white-haired gentleman sitting, and he had his chair pulled out to a young fellow, and I got that point, and I said, just stick with us. It's going to clear up. It's just the toxicity of alcohol. He jumped up, and he said, hallelujah, I thought I'd lost my mind. <laughs> And I said, God, we know why I'm here tonight, don't we? <laughs> I said, well, you know, I said, well, if I can't read the big book and I can't remember it, I don't know what I'll do. I just don't think it'll work for me. Sure as hell, I'll get drunk. So I said, I wonder how it works. Oh, my God, how does it work? I think, we read how it works. I bet that'll tell me how it works. Yeah, I'm getting better. So I get the big book and I flip this sucker over and I'm reading down there how it works. It says, honesty, 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 honesty. I said, that's it. It's honesty. That's the key word. It is honesty. Look at it. Three times in the first paragraph from chapter 5, honesty, that grave emotional mental disorder. Then you'll still recovery out of the to be honest. I may still have a grave emotional mental disorder, but I'm honest. When I went in, when I went, I begged to go into treatment. When I went to treatment, I sat in front of the treatment center guy and I was drinking a quart of whiskey a night. And I sit in front of Dr. Talbot, and he looked at me and said, Burns, how much do you drink? And I said, I drink a six-pack of beer every night. He said, you're lying. And I said, I know it. I do it all the time. Why did I do that? 
<laughs> they, were, they really knew what they were talking about. I used to play golf, and I'd hit my golf ball on the green, and I'd go over and I'd put a dime in the front of the golf ball. Then I'd come back when I'd put my ball down and put it in the front of the dime. You know, I'd just save myself a, a fourth of an inch on a 40-foot putt. <laughs> and I just hated my guts. You know, I just hated it. And when I came home that year after I was in treatment, that summer, I spotted my golf ball right. And I'd tell my, this honesty shit's good stuff. I mean, it's really working. You know, I began to feel good about me. I could be honest. It became, don't drink, go to meetings, and don't tell lies. That's exactly what it came from me. They said, you ask Burns Brady anything, and he'll tell you the truth. I mean, I didn't do what you're talking about, but he'll tell you the truth. And it really was. I began to feel good about me. Somebody said, well, let's cash register honesty. Well, I realize that. They said, you've got to be honest with yourself. And I realize that. There's a problem with that. There are a lot of times when I don't know when I'm being honest with myself. Today, I really have problems for some reason. I know when I'm lying, but when it gets down to those gray areas, I kind of get a little goofy at times about whether I'm lying or not. But I'll tell you what God has given me. He's given me the prayers that I follow in the big book. He's given me a fellowship, and I'm talking about specific to five meetings a week and there's uh, about nine guys that know every single thing about me including if I've got a hemorrhoid. I mean, they literally know it. I pray, I share with that group and I do help others and I'll tell you what, with that kind of combination, I don't have to worry about my delusions because they know the way my breath smells and they know when I start to get off center and I'm doing all the things that we teach each other and I've come to know exactly and to trust exactly where my strength is. Clancy gave a wonderful talk one time, and he said that he was sitting there, there about 20 years old, and he's up there walking in the clouds with God, and he's looking down on us, and he said, God, how are they doing? So God said, they're doing all right, Clancy. He said, well, how am I doing? He said, you're doing fine too, Clancy. I bet you could have a light beer. I'm here to tell you the delu- I believe in the inspiration of prayer, like the eleventh step says. I truly believe in it, but I'll tell you what else I believe. I, I have got, I don't have to believe this. I have enough experience to know how delusional, isolated prayer can be for me. Because I can make God's will damn near anything I want to twist it into. And I don't know it till I've just shot the door off the outhouse, and that's exactly what happens about half the time, you know? And I can give you example after example of it. I won't do it because time is not there, but I, I have found to pray is essential, to share it is even better. Prayer and share. Prayer and share. The inspiration of prayer is incredible. Sharing it finishes it. It's beautiful. For me, it's beautiful. Don't drink, go to meetings, read the big book, and don't tell lies. Ah. I don't want to close any talk, and I'm not close to closing if any of you are getting ready to think I am. <laughs> I promise you honesty. I didn't promise you brevity. You know, I told you that. But I do not want anybody to ever leave a talk I've ever given and say, and I, there were a lot of, in the first eight years of my recovery, there, almost every talk did not focus at all on the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous because I didn't use it. I grew up in a program where that we didn't, they, they, we gave lip service, as I told you, but it was basically don't drink and go clean up drunks. It was a two-step program. It took me five years to get through the steps. It took Bill Wilson a matter of a, a week or thereabouts. And don't let anybody walk out of this room that said Burns Brady did not emphasize the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
because the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, when I became a true student and a liver of it, at eight years in this program, when I was almost crazy, has brought sanity back into my life because of the process and my responsibility in doing it. The way I worked the first eight years of my program was much like if I left from Louisville to go to Atlanta. I want, I want to go to Atlanta real bad, and I know it's south. There are three roads out of Louisville that go to Atlanta in that direction. I might end up in Memphis, Asheville, or Nashville. And that's the way I did the first eight years of the program. I just kept on trying to get to Atlanta until I always met. I just wanted sobriety so bad that I kept sober. I kept not drinking, never even considered drinking. Never even considered it. But I wandered all over this recovery for eight years. First three months I was in the program, I went over, uh, I had a spiritual director. We don't, we don't talk much about spiritual advisors, directors anymore in this program, but when I came in, I had a spiritual director. And he said, I want you to come into church. We're having a series of lectures on, on, uh, the spirituality of alcoholics anonymous, or spiritual, on spirituality. So I went in three months in the program and I sat down in this, this Episcopal uh, Bishop, who was a uh, theologian and was on um, sabbatical in uh, Lexington, sat there and he said, I've, for 40 years I have been a theologian in this church. He said, I've never seen a perfect recorded program of spirituality, but the one that comes the closest to it is the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I just sat there involved. Because this wasn't a therapy session, this wasn't a treatment center, this wasn't an AD, this was someone not even associated with Alcoholics Anonymous or Alcoholism say, the best is Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what I found. The roadmap of the big book. The roadmap of the big book. Please don't ever walk away and let me leave you. I asked God after I became aware of this program and, and, and the big book about eight and a half, almost nine years sober at that time, I said, God, I'm not arguing with you. I'm not even angry, but I'd really like you if you would tell me why you left my ass hanging out there for eight and a half, nine years. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to tell me, but I'd sure like it. And I felt that voice. You know the voice we feel? You know it, Bob. You know that voice we feel. And I felt... I felt God's voice say, more will be revealed to you, but I don't want you to ever walk away from me and that you don't tell people that the way you did it, it don't have to be that way. It don't have to be that way. It don't have to be that way. And I promise him I'd never leave a podium or never leave a meeting that I didn't share that. Told me to get a sponsor. I got a sponsor. Looked like he could walk, talk, and chew gum, and make some sense. And he gave me a list of, and I said, "What do you want me to do?" And he said, "I want you to take this list of names." And I said, "What do you want me to do with it?" And he said, "I want you to call these people every day." And I said, "I don't want to call them." He said, "Call me." I said, "What am I going to say?" He said, "You're going to ask them how they are." And I said, "I don't give a damn how they are." And he said, "You're going to call them anyway. You'll learn to give a damn." He knew we talked about being in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, not around it. So I'd call him, first one up there was Bob P. Been sober 17 years. Hell, I thought he's probably born sober being sober 17 years. I'd, I'd call him every morning. I'd say, Bob, how you doing? He'd say, I'm doing fine. I'd start laughing. I'd say, why are you laughing? He said, because you're funny. You know? <laughs> Six months into this program, Bob's dog died, and he and I cried over the phone about that dog dying. And when I first started calling him, I wouldn't have cried if he had died. <laughs> you know? That's right. 
Exactly. I mean, I'll drive down the road and I get weird sometimes. You know, I think, I'm sure y'all don't think I'd never get weird, but I drive down the road getting weird sometimes. I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about Alexander Graham Bell. He's sitting there and I'll say, you're supposed to, Alexander, what? This is God. He said, what do you want, God? He said, I want you to invent the telephone. Well, what for, God? Because I'm getting ready to start Alcoholics Anonymous, and they got to have some way to talk to each other. <laughs> it weird, it's weird, but it works because that's the way it is, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful? Last year, my drinking was pretty much always the same. I would get up at 11 o'clock. I couldn't get up any earlier. My office hours started at 8, but I couldn't get up at 8 because I didn't go to bed till 8. And, uh, and, I, and, I, and I'd get up and I'd be shaking so bad, and I'd take a Valium. And I, I didn't like Valium, but it's the only thing that would stop my shaking. And I'd take that Valium to stop my shaking, and then I'd race into the office, and I would do in about two hours what it takes me all oh, 8 or 10 to do today. Then I would race home from the office and get into the apartment in case he always had me a broil steak and baked potato because I'd ask her to fix me one because I knew I was destroying my liver if I didn't eat. I gave some fleeting thoughts of not drinking, but that was out of the question, so then I decided to eat my broil steak and baked potato. And I'd sit down and eat it as quick as I could and then take my quart of whiskey and I would sit down with my glass and I'd start drinking and take about five minutes to where I'd just stopping and shaking bad enough, I put on my first record of the evening, which was the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, the Philadelphia Philharmonic Orchestra doing the Battle Hymn of the Republic. <laughs> Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming, and I just cried. <laughs> oh, I'd play it for four or five hours, blasting, wide open, you know. I still cry. It's a great song. It's a great song. But the tears are tears of hope today. Boy, there was no hope then. I'd just cry. And I'd take that record off after about five hours, and I'd get my next one, which was Neil Diamond's I Am, I cried. And I'd put that record in there. <laughs> and this record, Neil Diamond, is somewhere, hell in Joplin or Mayfield in a motel, and he can't figure out whether he belongs on the West Coast or the East Coast. He's talking to a chair. And he said, I am, I cried. And I'd go, God, Neil, I know what you mean. Neil had a problem about that time. Now, I mean, I could really relate to Listen to that song. It's a wonderful song. It's from Hot August Night in the middle 70s. It's a great thing. Best thing he ever did. Certainly I can relate to it. But listen to that song. Because about three quarters of the way through it, he says, I'm not a man who likes to swear, but I never cared for the sound of being alone. I never cared for the sound of being alone. When I was drinking, I could be in a crowd and I'd be all alone. Today I can be by myself, and I'm never alone. I'm never alone. And for those of you who are out in this room tonight, if that has not happened, stick with us. Because I will promise you, as it was promised to me, and it will happen, if you're willing to go to any lengths to get what we have, there will come a day when you'll never walk alone. Take it to the bank. You will never walk alone. I can drive to work today, fly in an airplane, and reach over and take God's hand. And the real joy is when I'm taking a trip with Casey, I can hold his hand and hers. And what an incredible joy. What an incredible joy. Thank you for that. That morning I got up, Casey gone to work, put the gun in my mouth, became aware of a desire to live. Went to see the psychiatrist. He looked at me and he said, Burns, 
How do you feel? And I said, I'm depressed. He said, do you think it's the drinking? I'm depressed. Well, maybe you drink too much. David, I know I drink too much, but my problem is I'm depressed. I'm trying to shoot myself. What do you more proof do you want? He said, just don't I'm depressed. Can't you hear? I've never seen a person walk in this program who wasn't depressed. Ninety-five percent of us are going to get over it. Five percent will not and will need medicine. Trouble is you can't tell the difference for two years, so you treat us all alike. You know? But he couldn't, he could not get to me. He could not bring the cart, or the horse back in the front of the cart. All I would say was, I would cry and say I'm depressed. So he didn't know what to do with me. He had, he had to do his homework while I was off at New York to find out where to send me. But he said, Burns, he said, you gotta go in the hospital. And I said, I don't wanna go in our lady of peace, but I'll do anything you tell me to do. He said, you're not going in there. And so he sent me to a, a psychiatric hospital in New York that made one flew over the cuckoo's nest look like a walk through Central Park. <laughs> And he sent me there because he said, Burns, I didn't know what to do you. He said, I decided I'd just try to scare the hell out of you. <laughs> and it worked. I got there, and I was on the fourth floor of this place, and they had us all together, the manic depressives, the schizophrenics, the pillagers, the plunderers, the rapists, I mean, the, the, the skydivers, all of them. The, the, they had us all, the alcoholics, all on one floor. And they didn't really believe in detox. They gave me some vitamins. And they sent me down to eat. That was a joke because we had a plastic plate and a little hole in there. You put your plastic plate through it. I couldn't get that plate through that, through that hole. I, and then they had another keen idea. They took the plate around behind and put the food on it, brought it back, and gave me a knife and a fork. That's watch the beans, watch the peas, you know. <laughs> Trying to get the beans and the peas. I'm sitting there having a hell of a time, you know. I don't know, maybe they're watching, watching. Look at his eyes. <laughs> Finally, after about four days, I go through that pit and they send me down to this little TV room. They got a black and white TV with a coat hanger antenna, eight chairs, no boy from Kentucky sits in that chair up there. Now, the guy back here, uh, on this back row, is a catatonic schizophrenic. And, and literally, these, these, these people have a brain chemistry problem not dissimilar to ours. Now, they need medicine, we don't, with rare exception, but they have, they have some similar brain chemistry problems like we do. And they'll get like that, and they'll starve to death. If you don't give them medicine, they literally will starve to death because they're not able to overcome their catatonia. Well, they'd given him his medicine, and he was back here, and he wasn't quite in this world, and I wasn't quite in this world. We're sitting there, and he stands up. He's 6'6", weighs about 270. I hear something rustling, and I'm sitting over like that, and I turn around and look, and he's taking off all of his clothes. He's sitting there butt-naked watching the television. Thing. And I look at him, and I think, oh, my God, what if he wants me? <laughs> and then I then I say, what if they give me to him, you know? <laughs> I don't know the rules, but I've heard bad things, you know, about his opinion. Oh no. So after after about five or six more days, he does it every day and I'm getting used to it. Nobody else paying attention, so hell we're just watching television. About ten days in this in this rehab program, they, they, uh, I'm playing ping pong with a guy and he goes back to his room and they ask me if I've seen him and I said no and they go find him and they find him hanging dead in his closet. And they come to me and they say, let's go sit in the rehab room and let's talk about our feelings. I said, just get the hell out of my way. I said, there's something bad wrong here. I'm going to my room and I went in the room and I closed the door and I sat down 
kneel down and I said, God, what is wrong? What's wrong with me? I'm on the inside. I ain't on the outside. They didn't send me here to monitor this program. I'm here. I'm a patient. What is wrong with me? And I heard that gentle voice say, Burns, you're an alcoholic. What a gift. You're an alcoholic. I went to David and I called David the psychiatrist and I said, David, I'm an alcoholic. He said, do you believe that? And I said, I really believe that I'm going to come home and get in therapy with you and I'll be all right. He said, wrong. I said, what do you mean wrong? He said, I'm going to send you to Atlanta. I figured out where you should have been to begin with. I'm going to send you down to Atlanta to an alcohol treatment center down there. And I said, oh, David. And he trusted me so much he sent somebody up to get me. <laughs> you know? And he flew me down. And I couldn't, I was, I was so mad at him. What do you mean you don't trust me? You're sending somebody up to He had 21 years of history on me and I had five minutes of inspiration. And I couldn't figure out, have you seen these new people come in the program? Well, I told my wife this morning, I'm through. I've had a spiritual awakening. That, right, she's going to forgive you for those 14 traffic tickets, those three periods of infidelity, and uh, that 21 years of bad road. And I love it when somebody comes in with me in the program and they can't figure out why we don't believe them on the first day, you know? That was like David saying, no, Burns, I'm sending somebody up. You don't trust me. Hell no, he didn't trust me. Why should he? I had trouble getting to the convenience, much less going from New York to Atlanta. Went down to Atlanta, got in the treatment program, went to the halfway house, lovely experience, came home and got into AA. First year in Alcoholics Anonymous, oh, Lord God, was I lost. I shared with you the toxicity. The night I got my, my token, I sat there and cried. And they said, are you grateful? And I said, I don't know. They said, how do you feel? And I said, I don't know how I feel. Well, do you want to be with us? Oh, yes, I want to be with y'all. But I don't, I just don't feel. Well, are you sure you're not great? I don't know. Casey had a party for me that night after I had my birthday, and we went home, and there was a bunch of people that I dearly loved then and loved today. I went to bed. They had the party. Then after about a year and a half, it started to clear up, and I became little Mr. AA. Get up on time, eat your breakfast, read your meditation, go to your office, see your patients, call your wife, eat your lunch, call your sponsor, get home at five, eat your supper, go to your meeting, come home, read your big book, go to sleep, boom, boom. and that was it. I gotta tell you folks, at the end of the eleventh step in the sixth chapter it says alcoholics, we are undisciplined. We allow God to discipline us in this way. And it took that discipline. I was having a hundred and eighty degree change in my thinking. Common sense was becoming uncommon sense, the things that were told, and it took that discipline in my life. That old timers would look at me about four years in the program and I these young people would come to me and I I was giving them some good stuff. And I was like a bullstring inside. And they'd say, you don't have it yet. They'd say, hell no, I don't have it yet. <laughs> this is a small asshole. Can't you see it? <laughs> and I, I was down in South Georgia visiting this dear friend of mine, the priest, priest Jim Law, and, and, and he'd been my, my spiritual advisor. And boy, I was just flying apart. And I dropped down on my knees in the Holiday Inn Motel, and Casey was with me. I said, God, take away the pain. Drinking did not enter my mind. Just take away the pain. And she put her hands on my shoulder. She said, call your sponsor. My first sponsor in AA, I need to tell you this, is one of those people who believed in the group was his higher power. I'm not taking his inventory. I'm just reporting to you. 
he believed in that first step and that 12th step in the group being his higher power. And I tell you that because I want to tell you what happened. I called Jim and I said, Jim, I am literally miserable. And he said, Burns, you're the most compliant person I've ever known, but it doesn't seem to take any. And I said, Jim, will it ever take any? He said, yes. He said, when you get home, we'll talk about it. As I started to hang up, he said, let me ask you something. And I said, what's that? He said, do you believe if you get drunk tonight, it'll make you bad? And I said, yes, I do. He said, you're wrong. He said, do you believe if you work these steps perfectly today, it'll make you good? And I said, yes, I do. He said, you're wrong. I said, I don't understand. He said, Burns, you've been trying to buy something that isn't for sale. It's given for fun and for free. God loves you just the way you are. You can't earn it. You can't kick it away. You're God's child. You were born that way, and you will die that way. He loves you just the way you are. I tried to be perfect for Mama, and she couldn't handle it. I tried to be perfect for me, and I couldn't do it. I tried to be perfect for God, and he didn't need it. All those years in the church, the one parable that jumped at me was the parable of the prodigal son. And yes, it is a parable of a drunk who comes home. And yes, it is a parable of a brother that has to deal with his resentments. But what it means to me, it's the parable that says there is a father who waits. And he will be there whenever we're willing and ready to come to him. Without strength, without conditions, he loves me just the way I am. For the next three years of my recovery, God was preparing me to be able to live for fun and for free. I didn't know at the time what was happening, but he was preparing me, and he knew when I was ready he would send me a teacher. All of my life I've taken hostages or I've been one. My first sponsor, I manipulated him into being my keeper. I took him every single living problem I had, and he loved to do it. He was the control king, and I picked him because I wanted him. He solved every living problem for me, and I'd turn around to my pigeons and solve them the same way he solved them for me. He told me what to do. I told them what to do. They were my hostages. I was his. But the biggest hostage I had was my wife. You're talking about perfect. You're talking about the ideal family. I mean, we were held up as a paragon of what a happy marriage could be, and we were happy. Every morning I would go to uh, to work and I'd call her at 9 or 10 in the morning and tell her how much I loved her. But she better be there. At 3 in the afternoon I called her to tell her how much I loved her. But she better be there. I didn't know that. Until she came to me at 8 years in the program and she said to me, Burns, I've never loved you more, but there's some things I want to do. I want to go back to college. I want to start going to women's meetings because we went to meetings together four or five a week. I want to get into therapy. And I looked at her and I said, Casey, whatever you think you need to do, you do it. And what I thought was, you kissed my ass. I mean, it just, I mean to tell you, my ha- I came up, my hackles raised up in me and I didn't even know it. And I, by this time, my first sponsor, I, I couldn't accept me anymore living that way. And that true, I know what codependency is. It's not a bad word to use right, and I know what it was. I didn't have any idea who I was. He told me, I told them, and I told her. 
So I got me another sponsor, and I went up to him. Bryant knows him, many of you. I walked to him, and I said, Jack, I'm going to get me another woman. I don't need this one. I'll get me another woman. And he looked at me, and he said, you can do that. You can do that. He said, but if you don't change your attitude, you're going to run that one off like you're running this one off. And I sat there and started crying because I didn't know what he meant. And about that time, the teacher came. A little, a little pigeon of mine with seven months of sobriety walked up and handed me some tapes. And he said, would you listen to these tapes and let me know if you think they're any good? And they were Joe and Charlie's tapes of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And as I listened to those tapes, I cried all the way through them, realizing the program I didn't have and what I would need to do to get it. I had 20 copies of those tapes made, and I gave them to 20 of my closest friends, and 12 of us began a big book study group six years ago. We studied Joe and Charlie's tapes with a big book, reading right along with it. Then we did the 18-week big book. Then we just read it again with each other, sharing our experience, strength, and hope. And I really did become a student of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean a student. And then it came from the book to my head, to my heart, and it became a way of life for me. What I found as I read through that book was exactly why Burns Brady's even on the face of this earth. Always I wonder, why am I even here? And as I read through that book, it jumped out. You are here to prepare yourself to be of maximum service to God and your fellow man. You can't give away what you don't have, but you do your work well and be right with him, and you will be ready. You will be ready. And I knew, I knew why I was here. I even knew what I needed to do with Casey. I literally changed completely to support her in the things she wanted to do. I fixed breakfast. I did the little things that you talked about. I'm more, I'm more verbal than your husband. But I did the little things. What I said wasn't as important as what I did. And I really supported her. And as it, as, it, as it came through me, it came to everybody I touched. Being prepared to carry God's message. And today what I know is, God, what is your will? And I used to think, I don't understand what his will is until I realized every single day his will is in every situation for me to be prepared to be of maximum service to you. There's a magnificent magnificent sentence at the end, right before the promises. Almost no one ever mentions it. It's the very sentence before the promises which says, as God's people, we stand on our feet. We don't crawl before anybody. That statement is made with sensitivity, tactfulness, consideration, and humility. Nowhere does it tell me I have to accept unacceptable behavior, but everywhere it tells me I am to prepare me to be ready to serve you. It doesn't say I have to deny me prepare myself to serve you. And I became a true member of Alcoholics Anonymous, the way it works in my life today. The next thing I found is tolerance. It took honesty to get me sober. It has taken tolerance to enable it to grow. If there is one Achilles heel in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that I see over and over, it's the intolerance that rips this program. And watch it. We have opinions on everything. And sometimes it doesn't matter a damn whether they're informed, ill-informed, spiritual, or just my own self-centeredness. People, institutions, and principles. I have a responsibility to this program the traditions and steps tell me. Boy, when I stomp on you simply because you don't do it my way. 
I get everybody sick. It took tolerance to make it grow. I walked in this program and you said, don't drink, go to meetings, read the big book. When I read the big book, it said, trust God, clean house, help others. So incredibly simple and so incredibly profound and certainly in my life so functional and beautiful. I'll share with you two or three stories and then I'm three. First is my daughter. Fifteen years ago, my daughter said straddling my chest. I was drunk. I'd gone home to sit with them because their mother was in an institution in a, in a mental hospital. <laughs> a lot of which was either trying to deal with me and those kids and I wasn't helping. She straddled my chest when I was passed out and she tried to shoot me with a shotgun. The reason she didn't was because it was an automatic. She couldn't load it. She was strung out on amphetamine, Darvon, Valium, and whiskey. Three years ago, she got married. She's been in the program ten years, and guess who she asked to give her away? Daddy. Daddy. She married a man in the program with an 11-year-old son, and she's an incredible mother. She's <laughs> an incredible mother. A beautiful daughter and a beautiful lady. My son came in the program five years ago. I guess it's been about six right now. Through a series of events that really were well-directed and spiritually thought through, Burns had to be on the streets for about three months. His mother kicked him out and should have. He came to me and I already laid the ground rules and, and he knew it and he couldn't live there. After three months, he came and asked me if I'd help him get into treatment, so of course I did. A year after he was back in treatment, we were sitting in a meeting discussing one night, and this lady said, I, my son went off to camp with two other boys, and they found him smoking dope. I know my boy smokes dope, but I, I, I don't know what to do to help him. They just didn't catch him. We all talked. Finally, my son raised his hand. He said, I don't know what to tell you to do for him, but I'll tell you what turned my life around. He said, I watched my sister. Who was a, I loved her so much, and she became somebody I was ashamed of. She came into Alcoholics Anonymous and became a lady, and I knew that it would work. But the thing that turned my life around is I hated my daddy's guts. He lied to me. He lied to my sister. He beat up my mother. Came into Alcoholics Anonymous, and he quit lying to her. When he told us he'd be there, he showed up. He came in one night, and he didn't even know I heard him, but he sat in the living room and talked to my mother and told her how sorry he was and made some arrangements financially to do a whole bunch of things that I knew were not his fault. And mother told him to get out of her house. And as he left, he said, Sally, I'm sorry. I really love you, and I'll try to help you with the kids the best I can. He said, when I was on those streets, it dawned on me that what I wanted more than anything else was to be just like my daddy. Just like my daddy. I want to tell you this last story. I've never told anybody this because it didn't happen that long ago. I grew up in that home where my daddy was an absolute rock. He was beautiful. He was so strong. He didn't communicate much, but he was so strong. Daddy has been ravaged by age. Mama died in 78. Daddy had never been the same. He married a beautiful lady who was my stepmother, and she, she really takes care of him because about four years ago, Daddy really started to lose his memory and his mind. He doesn't know me anymore. He thinks I'm my Uncle Buster, his brother. 
he thinks my brother, and I have one brother, is Uncle Carl, his brother. He doesn't know me anymore. I go down at least once a month and visit my daddy, and we had to put him, my stepmother had to put him in a nursing home, and she should. And I went into the nursing home about a month ago. And as I sat out there in the car for a dinner, it's about a 250-mile drive, and I prayed all the way down, because I really missed my daddy. And I had many of those same feelings about daddy's being gone and not knowing me. And I prayed, God, just let me be a service to this man for all the things and the love he gave me. And as I walked in, I sat down with him and we talked and he said, well, Buster, it's good to see you. Guess we'll go out and see Mama, or see Pop, Mama and Papa Brady pretty soon. As soon as I get out of here, I got a little bit of chores to do and I'll be out. Right? We talked for a while. Finally, we went, we went back in the sunroom and I was talking to Peggy, my stepmother, and we were carrying on. I was joking like you've heard me do here because I really feel it. That's just the way it is in my life. And I was always that way. Got awfully bad when I was drinking and drugging. But a happy man again. And as I was talking, he looked at me. He said, son. I said, what? He said, Burns Mac? Where has he been? You're just like the little boy your mother and I raised. Thanks for coming to see me. And he still doesn't know me today. But for 30 seconds, I was the little boy he and Mama raised. And you gave it to me. You gave it to me. Alcoholics Anonymous is the language of the heart. We feel... We don't have to talk. We know what's beside us. We know when we don't even see. And we know when we don't talk. For the next five or ten seconds, I'd like you to help me do something that I've never closed to me without doing. Close your eyes and feel the power of the person next to you and the power of this room, the language of the heart for just a few seconds. I close every talk the same way. And I literally was unable to think or to do anything except follow directions. I used to listen to a lot of tapes. Father Martin had a tape called The Twelve Steps, and he closed that tape the way I feel about you. You people are in my thoughts frequently. You're in my heart, and you're in my prayers always. I love you from the bottom of my heart. I thank you for asking me to come and talk. I thank you for just loving me when I couldn't love myself and allowing me to love you until I could learn to love myself. Most of all, I thank you for delivering me the message that gave me my life. For those people that I've met again, it's good to see you. For those people that are new in my life, welcome. Pull up a chair and let's talk anytime. For those people I may never see again, if we walk in this faith and in this program, we will meet again. Godspeed until that time, and good night. Thank you.
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.